This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can follow Berkeley Talks wherever you listen to your podcasts. New episodes come out every other Friday. Also, we have another podcast, Berkeley Voices, that shares stories of people at UC Berkeley and the work that they do on and off campus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this really important panel discussion entitled Fighting for Women's Rights, Afghanistan and Iran. As you all know, we are living in a time where more restrictions are being placed on the lives of women, women and girls in many countries and cultures. Since the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan in August of 2021, the group has placed limitations on employment, education, public interactions, and other fundamental rights such as access to justice. Iran's morality police carry out brutality for breach of the country's strict dress code. And of course, in the U.S., abortion bans, as we all know, are increasing. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, This event is being presented in partnership with the Pulitzer Center. I want to thank Anne Peters for making this happen. I want to thank... Uh, Deidre English and Leah Swindle and our amazing events team at the Journalism School. This is the type of conversation that could not happen um, in many other places. And I just want to, for a moment, just value the fact that we are here and able to have this conversation with um, some women doing the most important work in covering these areas. Um, so I also want to recognize some of our students um, and some of our guests here who are from Iran and from Afghanistan and um, have lived some of the challenges that are, we're going to talk about here today. So thank you for being here and for supporting this this event. Um, I'm going to introduce our panelists, but before, let me just tell you how we'll organize ourselves. Uh, we'll have about 40 minutes of dialogue, um, our guests and me, and then we'll open it up to about 25 minutes of questions from, from all of you. So um, we've already discussed how we want to just dive in and have an active, engaged, lively conversation. We're going to just jump in if we have ideas and thoughts, and we're going to cut each other off if we have something more important to say. Men have been trained to do that, and we women are learning very fast how to do the same. Um, I want to say I come from India, um, a country where women also suffer a lot of discrimination, and where, as we'll all be discussing, it's really challenging as a reporter um, trying to cover difficult stories in a country, in countries where there's so much discrimination. Of course, in dictatorships, it's even more challenging. Um, But I just could not be more um, excited to talk to you about just how you have lived these challenges and trying to do your stories and what the stories are that you've covered. Um, So we have um, Arizu Rizvani, who's a reporter and senior editor for NPR News. She's also founding editor of Up First, NPR's daily news podcast. 
Much of her work centers on people experiencing some of the most difficult days of their lives in places that are often in the throes of radical change. Her reporting has brought her face-to-face with with child cold miners in Afghanistan, resistant fighters in Ukraine, radical clerics in Pakistan, and abandoned newborns in Lebanon's collapsing hospitals. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Jane Ferguson, um, a PBS NewsHour correspondent, contributor to The New Yorker and multiple Pulitzer Center grantee, the 2020 Princeton University McGraw Professor of Journalism, Ferguson has more than 13 years of experience living in the Middle East and reporting from the Arab world, Africa, and South Asia. Her work focuses on U.S. foreign policy and defense, conflict, diplomacy, and human rights, with honors including the Alfred DuPont Columbia University, George Polk, and Emmy Awards. Welcome, Jane. And Zara Joya, founder of Rukshana Media. She founded it in December 2020. It's Afghanistan's first feminist news agency, created with the aim of becoming the first national news source where Afghan women could see their own lives reflected in the stories published every day. Joya was named as one of Time's Women of the Year in 2020 for her reporting on women's lives in Afghanistan. She continues to run Rukshana Media from exile in the UK, publishing reporting from her team of female journalists across Afghanistan on life for women under Taliban rule. Welcome, Zahra. So I want you all to dive in to these questions, but I'm going to begin um, just briefly, not briefly, but addressing this question to Zahra first, but I want everyone to join in afterwards. But talk about the challenges that women face as journalists trying to report in Afghanistan. Hello, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. Okay. So, thank you. So, okay, thank you so much for having me here. Um, it's a great honor to be with you. Um, um, Afghanistan is a patriarchy and traditional countries. Uh, it's a very difficult to being a woman in this country, especially this moment. Uh, but being a journalist is now it's far away, but uh, before it was. Uh, almost difficult and you know like in, in this country is a dangerous country for journalists so um after the collapse of afghanistan uh, um, more than uh 80% of uh female journalists they um disappearing from afghan media landscape so the uh, brave um number of female journalists is still working but they are facing to the fourth hijab so even the female prisoners in the tv they have to cover um, their face with mask which is very very difficult for them yeah i interviewed with one of them and she told me that you know like 
when I'm reading the news, so I couldn't breathe. So it was very, very difficult for her. So there is lots of pressure and restrictions. Um, so unfortunately, after the um, Taliban took power again, so there is no um, independent media and um, journalists exist in the country, inside of the country. But a number of uh, media and uh, journalists who are working in exile, um, it's a kind of light, I can say light, because, uh, you know, the people uh, inside the country, they say we are hearing about the, what is happening in our country from the exile media, which is, I think it's very important to, the exile media can keep and going on. Yeah, thank you. Um, just building on what you just said, um, can we just talk about the challenges covering a country from the outside as exiled media or as journalists? As you, Can you talk a little bit, Jane, about just um, the challenges of doing that, of covering what's happening from the outside and, and sure. your experience trying to do that, if you have? Yeah, absolutely. I, I was last in Afghanistan in November of 2021, so the Taliban had been in control for several months. And and since then, and so when I was there, you know, obviously you're there, you're able to make connections with the women. You can talk to them on encrypted services. You can go and meet with them in places. But since then, I've been reporting from afar and you have to make connection with young women and then you have to try to do it as responsibly as you can. So we'll be like interviewing them, uh, hiding their their faces, in some cases, warping their voices um, and you can really just take testimony from them on what life is like. It's it's hugely challenging. Afghanistan, you know, one thing that I keep trying to remind people of is that before the fall of Kabul, Afghanistan had this enormous community, m- more so than any uh, any country that I'm often reporting from, of brilliant local journalists like Zahra and her community of, of reporters. There was a huge amount of them. And just you know, so many of them have gone. It used to be a place where you could get information and video and pictures from incredibly easily, and that has that has completely vanished now. So you're relying on uh, brave networks of brave young women who who are there, um, who are organizing themselves, who are still even to this day protesting in the street, which is unbelievably risky. Um, so they are ex- they're very very media savvy. Afghans are incredibly well connected to the internet, so they're very well aware of social media and the need to keep this story out there. So they do want to talk to the press. One other thing that 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 is helpful with regards to this, as opposed to in Iran, where you know in Iran the regime is so organized. I mean, it's it, there's such a multi-layered security apparatus um, that you know they can repress the internet, they can survey people. They're much more technologically advanced at effectively repressing insurgencies or, or any kind of uh, social insurgency. And um, in ta- in Afghanistan, that doesn't necessarily exist. So you are able to make connections uh, with with young women, which is which is incredibly helpful. It's much, much more challenging trying to do that kind of reporting with uh, with the Iranian protesters from afar. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything that Jane just said. Um, the surveillance state in Iran is very, very sophisticated. 
Um, I mean, everything down to facial recognition technology to stopping you on the streets to take a look at what's on your phone. And it makes it very challenging for people to kind of muster the courage to to speak up. Um, you know, there was an interesting conversation going on in the fall where there was pressure on news agencies to cover Iran, but it was hard to find people who would talk. Um, and even if you granted them anonymity, even if you altered voices, the surveillance state is so great there. The intimidation tactics are so strong there that people have a really hard time, understandably, um, speaking up and speaking out. So you just have to continue reaching out to people. And, you know, in Iran, the Internet is not always stable. They have a very, you know, strong ability to shut down the Internet. So at a certain point, we were, you know, reaching out to people via um, WhatsApp voice memos. So we'd send questions on recordings and they'd send back answers on recordings, which is not the greatest way to conduct journalism, right? You want to kind of be in the moment and have live conversations with people. But you do what you can in order to gather people's accounts. That might mean that you have to corroborate a bit more and really check your sources and think to yourself, well, does this make sense or does this sound like an exaggeration? I mean, it poses huge, huge challenges. Um, but it can be done. I think in Afghanistan, it's a little bit easier to talk to people. But also in the last year, I think it's become increasingly difficult for women especially to speak up. Um, I was there in August and again in November. And in a span of just a few months, um, I got the impression that people were a lot more tense on the streets. People felt like they were constantly being watched. Um, and I think that's always a fear of ours, right? Like we can do the interviews, put down the phone or do the interviews live, walk away. You never quite know what's going to happen to people who talk to you. Um, who is being filmed, for example, in Iran, there's there are a lot of cameras that are just kind of watching at every single moment. And they know exactly where you are. Your translator is someone who is assigned to you by the government. And that person both does the translation for you and is also a government minder. So covering these two countries at this moment in time is hugely challenging. And I think it's so important that we're having this conversation for that reason. Can you talk about um, NPR's decision to go back into Iran and just the challenge, the challenges of when to go back and how to think about it? Sure. So, you know, the, the protests really started in mid-September and it was the death of Mahsa Gina Amini in mid-September in the custody of the morality police that sparked that latest protest. There have been protests over the years, but this really galvanized people in a really extreme way. I think every news organization under the sun wanted to be there at the height of these protests. But it's very difficult to go in. I mean, you depend on getting a visa, and a visa is something that's issued from the state. And if they don't want you there, you're not going to be able to go. I mean, they will deny you at the airport. You'll have to turn around, and that's that. And so people had to get very creative about how they covered um, those protests. You know, the WhatsApp messages being an example of that. You can only count on Twitter feeds and social media for so much at a certain point, it gets very, very difficult to verify accounts. Um, at a certain point, though, I mean, we did 
apply for visas. We moved. We waited many, many months to get in. And finally, uh, in January, a team of ours at NPR got an email out of the blue one morning that um, that they had been granted a visa. And the protests had kind of died down at that point. Um, and we were coming up on the anniversary events of the, the 1979 revolution, which is traditionally a time when they, the state likes to kind of put its best foot forward and really celebrate uh, the revolution. And they bring a lot of supporters of, of the government out. And so they had a show to put on. And so a team of ours did go. And um, it's an interesting place. I mean, it's the kind of place where if you don't, know the culture very well, if you don't speak the language, if you don't know how to ask the right questions, things may look fine. You know, the cafes are bustling. People are pushing the limits of the dress code. Um, People, there's a veneer that things are going okay. People seem okay. You don't have to pull that veneer back too much to see that things are actually quite shaky. And people kind of when they answer you questions, you read between the lines. Um, they won't always be ready to to answer you directly. Um, we got a lot of heat for sending a team back. The idea being that, you know, why would you send a team of journalists there and legitimize this government? Why speak to officials? Um, I would argue that these are the exact moments where you have to go and cover a news story. It's it's in the moment of chaos where it's not quite clear what's going on. There might be a dominant narrative and you want to go and you want to check it out to see if that matches reality. Um, so I think all in all, it was a trip that revealed that although the protests have kind of died down, that there is still a lot of frustration, a lot of anger, and that this might just be the first phase of a much longer kind of protest and movement. I think also, uh, you know, uh, sort of jumping off what you're saying there, with regards to the criticism that sometimes journalists get leveled at them for going to places like that, where there's a a government that is, you know, granting access um, to some, but not to everybody. and, And, you know, you know that they're going to be subject to attempts to push propaganda. I do think that, Ultimately, it really comes down to how journalists and journalistic teams handle it, right? Like, you know, I mean, an, an NPR team going in who are highly experienced, who are very, very well aware of what's going on. You know, it, it, we, if we if we uh, if we if we go down the track of 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 being too wary of criticism, people, you know, we get dangerously close to the the, the similar argument, which is why are you giving a platform to this particular terror group, or why are you giving a platform to that person? Um, and it's really not journalists' job to pick and choose. It's our job to get in anywhere we any way we can, but when there, do quality work. You know, knowing the context, knowing the people, giving as broad a perspective as possible, and avoiding you know the, the worst excesses of ac- of um, access journalism. And so, you know, just because you have the access doesn't mean you're doing access journalism. You know, you can still go into these places and still do quality reporting. In the early days of the uprising in Syria. You know, there were journalists who were able to get into Damascus and do um, good journalism as well. Um, so long as you know wh- the, what you're putting forward to, to your to your audience or the public is still a, you know a, a fair assessment of of what's happening on the ground. I will only add this. I mean, I think 
if you do want to go down this argument of why do you appear in countries where the government isn't legitimate, um, all of a sudden the world's going to start looking quite small. I mean, you're not going to go to Yemen, Saudi Arabia, North Korea, Iraq. I mean, there are so many countries where all of a sudden you're just not going to to visit. So I think it's a very kind of simplified, narrow-minded kind of way to look at what journalists do. I think a journalist's job is to you know, capture the world as it is, not as it ought to be. The world as it ought to be, that's the important work of advocates and lawyers and activists. In order to do that work, though, you have to kind of capture what's happening on the ground. You know, who are the main players? What's at stake? What are the agendas? What are the kind of hidden forces at play? Those are the things that you can only see if you go to a place and you talk to people and you see things for yourself and you kind of see the discrepancies between what people are saying, but then what you're seeing. So it's hugely important that we go to places exactly when they're in the throes of that transition or instability or protest. Sahara, I was wondering, um, thank you. Um, I was wondering how um, how you and um, I'll ask you to speak for some of the, the women who collaborate with you for Rukshana Media, but how do you and the women in Afghanistan who you work with as journalists view um, foreign correspondents who come in to cover, I mean, I'm generalizing hugely, but come in to cover the important stories happening in Afghanistan? What, like, what, I guess, what differentiates in your mind the, the good journalism from the bad journalism that it, that foreign correspondents do? And we all want to be doing the good journalism, but like, how, like, what, what can you offer us that would be, um, instructive? We have journalism students here. Like, how can we be the responsible international foreign correspondents? I think in a, you know like in countries like Afghanistan is has a lots of conflict so and I think at this moment it is very important to amplify the voice of people who are voiceless so um for foreign journalists and the, the uh, big media organizations in the world so I think uh, for them it's not matter, you know, like every single stories, but uh, they want to do a big story from country like Afghanistan that has almost um, forty millions population. So, um, and the next things that I uh, I I'm thinking because the foreign uh, journalists are in the um, International medias, they are based in um, capital, right? And big cities like Herat, um, Kabul, or Balkh. So, and Afghanistan has um, for ter- 34 provinces. So, there's lots of uh, stories that is still untold. Um, I think it is very good if the media can uh, focus on the every, um, you know, like in Helmand. There was a war for 20 years between uh, international forces and, and national forces of Afghanistan and, and the Taliban. So the journalists, I, I know there was lots of risk, so the journalists, they weren't allowed to go there. But 
um, there was lots of stories about the women's right and that the other uh, marginalized group that they didn't they didn't access to the media or the social media or the internet. So and in this moment, I think uh, that especially for me, it's very important that I'm focusing on other um, with my colleagues on uh, other provinces, not like in Kabul, right? It's not Afghanistan. It's not in Kabul, Kabul or or Herat or something like that. So we can, um, you know, like in um, Badakhshan, we have a group of uh, Afghan um, nationals that they called. Uh, I, I I don't remember their name. But they are living for a long time in the mountain. So they don't know even about the car, the street, the city. So they just living in the, um, in Pamir area. So they are just staying with, they have animals. So they, they are just a group of them. They are living there. So which international, uh, non, media, uh, media, international, international media and foreign, journalist vendor in this 20 years no one i think it is very good if um the journalists um when they think about uh, you know uh, countries like afghanistan so they have to recognize and um, the area that which area is important and has lots of stories so let's think about our editors as foreign correspondents and how, what are the obstacles to getting out to the rural areas of, you know, con- countries with difficult terrain like Afghanistan? I would say, first and foremost, for a lot of the news organizations, certainly U.S. news organizations and television, uh, security. And the truth is, the ugly reality is that security translates into money because Many of the broadcasters, uh, you know, uh, you know, they 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 dictate the need for private security firms, and they're incredibly expensive, and and um, that's a that's a big challenge. Um, I've been very lucky to be able to work just to to, re- to rely more on um, this on, on the security strategy of just having very good quality local contacts and working with great Afghan uh, colleagues. Um, but security is a big issue. Also, timing. You know, I used to work uh, in 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 Kabul uh, for Al Jazeera English as the Afghanistan correspondent, and part of it was it's cable TV. I can't be away from a live shot for too long. I, I mean, you know, I, it's it's terrific. Any time I can get you know permission to go up to you know Wardak Province or or to go to to anywhere outside of Kabul for several days with the team. But then if news breaks, they expect you to be there. So a lot of it is the type of media that you're reporting on, being able to go to an editor and say, hey, can I just have four or five days to dive off into Kunduz um, to, 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 to spend time there? And when I come back, you can have one really good story. <laughs> and they're usually asking you for more than that. Um, you know, I think recently I was there in November I think one of the big challenges now is just getting permission to go beyond the big cities like Kabul, like Herat, right? So nowadays the Taliban have to grant you permission to leave the province. When you Once you enter the new province, then you have to get permission from the governor. And that takes sometimes a very long time, many, many T's. 
Um, and then once you get permission, then you still have to go through checkpoints that are manned by, you know, Taliban guards who don't always get the memo or take a look at your letter and don't really agree that you should be there. And you kind of have to negotiate with them. I mean, it takes a lot of push and pull to just get to a place that, you know, normally takes you maybe five or six hours. It's all of a sudden like a 10 hour trip and it's nighttime and you kind of got to wrap it up, get to your hotel and not be out past dark for security reasons. Um, but it is so worth it. It is so worth it to get out of the big cities because I think you encounter inevitably some very surprising attitudes and perspectives. You know, the 20 years that the United States was in Afghanistan looked very different for women in big cities versus women in rural areas. For women in rural areas, life under the Taliban has been a big respite. You know, gone are the days of overnight raids. Gone are the days of random drone strikes, community gatherings, whether that's a funeral or a wedding. Life was pretty scary for women in rural areas, for families in rural areas. The Women's Empowerment Project projects that were you know held up and embraced in the big cities that so many women did benefit from i don't want to say that that wasn't you know good for a lot of people but that didn't always reach women in rural areas and so that's kind of just one narrow view of why it's so important to kind of break out of the big cities whether that's in the united states which we learned in 2016 with our election and the huge support that I think surprised a lot of people when Donald Trump was elected, or that's, you know, breaking out of the big cities in a country like Iran or Afghanistan. Also, I think when it came to the fall of Kabul, it was the same, like, you know, uh, just, just June of 2021, getting out of the, the, the Kabul bubble and driving up, just I remember taking a drive up to the Gorband Valley, which was like less than two hours away from Kabul, heading north. Uh, you know, we were with, uh, the Afghan military had already fallen back and asked the local militias to try to hold the line against the Taliban. I mean, the Taliban were literally advancing in front of our eyes towards the city. So when people were so shocked that they showed up on the city's outskirts, you know, they hadn't really left. Head south uh, an hour, two hours, and you're in Wardak province with the Taliban, who are literally just waiting to, to, to drive into the city. So, yeah, leaving the city also from a from from a just a pure war reporting standpoint is absolutely vital to see with your own eyes what we all now know was happening. Sarah, what stories um, surprised you that some of the reporters for Rukshana Media have been covering? What stories did they tell you that, or have they told that you just would not have expected? Uh, well, um, it's not the long time that I'm working as a uh, founder of Rukhshana Media because uh, I created Rukhshana Media in 2020 in uh, Afghanistan with, with the hope that we can, can uh, create a conversation among the Afghan women because in Afghanistan most of women unfortunately they don't have enough time or, or platform to talk each other um, so very soon uh, we lost this hope because of the, the Kabul uh, Afghanistan clubs um, during these two years, almost two years. So um, the most of the stories that we are publishing in our website and social media platforms are very sad and heartbroken 
especially in this moment that the families they want to um, sell a young girls you know, or or children like right? it's very very heartbroken and devastating for me but in the meantime um from um september of um 2021 a group of brave women they just stand against the aggressive policy taliban and they just raising their voice and it's you know like and they said no to the taliban as a um, group that they they are uh, to be honest they are t- terrorists um um but um it it is a very positive uh, some sometimes it gives me hope to be honest so because uh, when i i'm seeing a, a young generation of afghan women uh, who grew up in the during the 20 years and they went to school they went to universities and they educated so when they uh, when i'm you know like uh, and during this um uh 18 and 19 months that we are focusing on uh, afghan voices to amplify their voices so we are covering every single um protest because it is very important for us we are publishing video audio you know text every that because it, it's a kind of light and uh, that it will be encouraged the other people who are um voiceless and they are you know like i, I mean it's uh, very true that the taliban there uh scare the people and uh, um and trauma- traumatize them but in the meantime when i'm seeing that this young uh women they are just trying to fight and struggle for for their uh, rights it it is very um you know like very sometimes i i can't uh, find the word to describe my feeling because uh i came from this generation and uh, that who know about the their rights and the generation that they they recognize the value of freedom of speech um they they know about the um you know the uh, value of the education which is you know like in western in your country i, I think you're so lucky so you are you have a free country you are staying um from the beginning of your age you you can go to nursery to school to university but from from my country, um, yeah, and in my life, um, it was very difficult at the beginning that I go to school. Um, but and during this um, twenty years, I see that how the Afghan women they changed. In nineteen nineties, there was no, you know, women to. Again, to protest against the Taliban or to raise their voice, but because they they all most of them they were illiterate, they uh, they were uneducated, but in this moment we have lots of um, um, young women that from different provinces and they are um, struggling and, and and raising their voice. Thank you. Um, 
I just wondered what it's, if you could tell us about a particular challenge um, when you were out reporting in Afghanistan or Iran or that you faced particular to your gender as you went around about trying to cover a story in a dictatorship in a country with discrimin that's so severely discriminates against women. In my experience of covering, you know, uh, issues pertaining to women, um, whether or not it's uh, rape as a weapon of war in South Sudan or the female protesters uh, that Zahra uh, has has uh, has described, I've never really. I mean, the truth is that what they're going through is so extraordinarily repressive that you know, as as a reporter, I'm I'm I haven't felt anything kind of. I, I, anything, you know, with uh, that intense, you know, where I felt, well, you know, my gender is is an issue. I mean, sometimes back in the day in Afghanistan before the fall of Kabul, there would be times where the only time I ever felt that gender w w was um, was a slight hindrance was when it came to networking with powerful men. Because, you know, there are certain parties you don't get invited to. There are certain, you know, events, um, casual socializing events where it's just not... Um, considered either it's considered inappropriate or it would just be a little awkward. Um, in which case, I I I know that male colleagues have been invited to you know drinks at this minister's house or whatever. Um, but beyond that, like I, I honestly, um, I often feel like the biggest pressure in 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 at least in TV careers for for women is usually back home. You know, it's in the industry. It's the stuff we never talk about, the unspoken pressure to look a certain way and sound a certain way. And, um, you know, all, all the pressures that women who work in, in uh, on camera face, I think is way more at the forefront of our mind than when we're in the field. Sometimes when we're in, when we're in the field, we just feel genderless. You know, we're like, often we're a third sex in, in many of these countries. You know, we're kind of like women, but we dress like men and, and, um, and we just occupy this incredibly privileged space as as international journalists, you know, and we just sort of get on with our jobs. But I think about my gender a lot more in studios than I do when I'm in the field, unfortunately. I mean, I could not agree more. I am always surprised when I'm out in the field in a country like Afghanistan. I always kind of think that my gender is going to be a bigger deal than it actually is. And I am very aware that it is an exception you know, if Zahra goes to the same group of people that I go to, they're going to treat me very different because I hold an American passport and they have a certain image that needs to be projected and they need to accommodate me in ways that they don't need to with a local journalist. And I'm hypersensitive to that. I, I haven't quite figured out what to do with that. But it is something that is never lost on me whenever I'm in an audience, you know, talking to a minister or getting permissions. Checkpoints are always really interesting. You know, these are some these are former Taliban fighters who are in some cases coming in contact with an American for the first time in their lives. Some of them are quite young and it's the first time they're coming in contact with an American and a, and a woman. And they just. You get two different reactions. There's an intense sense of curiosity, and they kind of want to get to know you and try to figure out, like, who are you and why are you here? Um, or they just don't know what to do with you, and they just kind of move you on because it's just too uncomfortable. 
Um, so yeah, I am always surprised that it doesn't turn into a bigger deal than it has for me. Um, so do you usually go in a group or are you out in on your own in the countryside of Afghanistan or Iran? I always have, you know, a local colleague who is there to help translate if I need some help translating, although Farsi and Dari are pretty much the same, um, and a photographer. Um, and sometimes, you know, we go as a bigger group if we're sending, you know, a show host. I will also go with them as well. Uh, but no, I, I tend to travel in a team. And it's a team that consists of, you know, photographer, an interpreter, driver, we all kind of know each other and we have each other's backs and everyone kind of has an expertise in a different way. You know, our driver who tends to be a little bit older and dresses more conservatively kind of knows how to play the system in a way that I can't or a younger, you know, fixer can't. And he knows the kinds of interactions and words to use to kind of get us out of sticky situations. Um, so, yeah, it, it ends up being a good team that we travel with. I guess I was wondering because I was thinking of myself. Uh, I spent 10 years in India where I'm from as a foreign correspondent for the Wall Street Journal for most of the time and the New York Times for a little bit. And um, I was often traveling on my own. And I'm, you know, 50 years, I was 50 years old. And I thought I'm, you know, I have the younger reporters, the younger female identifying reporters, I would never send off on their own to the countryside. But I just thought I'm from India, you know, and I can just go and I'm 50 and I can head off into the countryside. And then I would end up in really scary situations because people were not used to a woman. I mean, I should have known this. It was just didn't occur to me that I mean, people weren't used to a woman on her own going to gather land records in some dusty office in the desert of Afghanistan. And I found myself in situations where the driver, because I was on my own in a car with a you know, chief of staff to the local politician, the driver saying, pulling up at a hotel and saying, you know, what alcohol do you want? And I would start texting my editor saying, whoa, and I would think, hello, in case you're wondering where I am, I'm here. Um, and I just realized, how, I mean, something that we should all know, but just how important just cultural context and not losing sight of it as a bicultural person that I am. And, um, and how then difficult it was as a an independent journalist who wanted you know to be able to be sent anywhere to then have to call my editor saying can you send like the 20 year old guy reporter down on an overnight train to join me because I can't continue reporting on my own um so I guess for me it was being both from there and not there and uh yeah yeah, there are limits. I mean, there are limits to what your gender can grant you in terms of access. That might be in a group of men, there are limits, but then it also gets you access, right? Especially now that we're back in this age of gendered separation, there are places that my male colleagues could never go and access, right? You want to talk to war widows in rural Afghanistan. There's just no way. Um and it's interesting that you bring up kind of your your biculture kind of background because that can help you in some ways. You can slip into the skin, blend in, catch things that, you know, I, for example, would stick out like a sore thumb and people would try to put on a, more of a show. So it's, it's a strange existence being a journalist when you're traveling alone, you're traveling alone as a woman um, or a man. It just depends on context. 
I think also, like you, you say, sometimes when you get more access, sometimes in the most patriarchal places, it, it really pays off to be deeply, decidedly underestimated. Like there are times where I'm slipping through borders pretending to be a tourist and the guy there, you know, at the at the at the, you know, the checkpoint or at the passport office is like, of course you are on you go. You know, they they don't think that you could possibly be, uh, you know, the, the reporter that they're looking at for or, you know, you could be alone self-shooting filming by yourself. So it being underestimated, it can be an incredibly powerful thing. And, and female journalists are often underestimated in uh, in the most patriarchal kind of uh, countries that, that they're going to or certainly the most patriarchal uh, political systems. Sahara, what about you when you were working in Afghanistan um, as a woman reporter? How did you go about reporting? <laughs> like, how did you, was it an advantage? Was it a disadvantage? How did you protect yourself? Um, so for, uh, I started uh, working as a journalist in, 2020, in 2011. So on that time, so the the office that I worked, um, most of the time I can say I was the only female journalist. But in the meantime, we we had lots of female journalists in around the country. So we had the you know tens uh, TV uh, radio stations and uh, online news agency. Um, but uh, it was a little bit dif- difficult for me that so um for example when um some explosion or or um suicide attack happened so in office uh, I wasn't allowed to go there because of uh, they said you you're a girl and you you can't do that who said that um uh, you know my colleagues my uh, you know men colleagues your bosses yeah, most of the time. So it's uh, you know they say it, it is very dangerous for you. Um, it is our responsibility to protect you, something like that. And uh, yeah, so in Kabul um, during the, af- I think after um, 2014, so a lots of um, a huge, um, uh, uh, but you know. Um, demonstrations happened uh, many times so most of the time I went there for for coverage um, but um, you know my colleagues um, male colleagues they just told me that you have to be careful you have to you know like don't go to among the, the people so it was <laughs> lots of restrictions but one day um, in 2015, um, I went to the Logar provinces, which is the, I think it's east of Kabul. Um, so there were there were more than um, hundred um, people. There was a, an event uh, in a school. So um, on that time, I was only um, female among the huge number of uh, students so just uh, one uh, local activist human rights activist uh, was a female so she, she covered herself 
um, uh, you know, like uh, she wear a hijab. For me, it was my normal clothes. So when I was there, the students, they just look at me and say, wow, you're, you know, like you're, uh, you don't have your hijab. And uh, they asked why, they asked uh, each other that why she's here, Nelly. Um, yeah, it was um, going to the um, provinces, it was difficult. Um, but um, from my my family, um, not my parents, actually, uh, my other uh, relatives, so they are very conservative and traditional mind. So they even, they were opposite of my career as a journalist. So... Yeah, it was it was quite difficult. And and Zahra, you were one of the first pioneering like Afghan female journalists to work for an international news organization. Um, you know, a lot of Afghan men were working within the broadcasting bureaus and all the newspapers, but you were the first to work at the Wall Street Journal. No, actually, I, I'm not. I'm not the only. So uh, my she's Zahra Nadir. But she, you, you, but so, you're part of that generation that really just started. Yes. So, um, uh, you know, uh, my news agency, it's the first uh, organization news agency that have, um, uh, has um, uh, collaboration and partnership with the foreign media, you know, big media like The Guardian. So we had a very um, good story far from home with, with the Time magazine. And we have partnership with the Fuller Project. So that I I think it is um, show our 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 um, the result of our struggling. Yeah. Let's talk about the news cycle and the challenge of covering women's rights in these countries with a changing news cycle. Can you? Talk about how that has impacted your ability to cover important stories like the struggle of women. Um, yeah, could you give us a, a, like an example? I, I, I mean, I think we all experience this where part of the biggest challenge is uh, that awful phrase like, you know, moving the story forward. Um, the, the problem with the news is that people, it, its very nature is that it is uh, preoccupied with uh, newness. And so the difficulty that us journalists face is when a story is not necessarily changing. It is more of the same. And there, you know, that's up to us to be innovative, to pitch interesting ideas, to get out of the cities, as you say, you know, to, 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 to talk to all different types of people. But I think, like, certainly in television, where there's limited resources, you know, right now we have a massive war in Ukraine, which is very expensive to cover. And that's a huge drain on budgets. You know, we're constantly having to fight to get keep covering these stories. And part of that fight, part of the pitch is, well, what can I tell you that, that you haven't heard already? Um, and unfortunately, that is one of the biggest challenges, I think, that in TV at least. Yeah, I mean, I think another challenge is that we live in an age where there's now so much data Right. So people know how many eyeballs are looking at a story and how many listeners have tuned in and how long did they tune into that story. And so news editors sometimes make editorial judgments just based off of 
oh, well, our audience has started to like, their interest is starting to wane. So we need to kind of move on. It's always really hard to to get past that. And I haven't quite figured out, you know, what the solution is there. Um, but if you do hear a good story, tune in for all of it. It helps us out a lot. Um, and it's really important. I mean, I think when when stories like Afghanistan fade from the headlines, that's when really scary things start happening on the ground, right? That's when the laws start being pulled back. That's when women start losing a lot of rights. It's it's done quietly. It's not done in this really big, noisy way where they're sending out press releases and they want the world to know. No, it's great that these stories fade from the headlines. Um, I think Iran and the government, it was really hard for them when every single day there were headlines about people being detained and the brutal conditions inside prisons and people getting death penalties on bogus charges. When you keep talking about it, when you keep listening to those stories and it's on the tip of your tongue, you keep talking about it with your friends or your family, that's accountability. You know, it's not just the stuff we do. It's it's the readers. It's it's how much of it you watch on television. That is also part of the accountability project. So, yeah, it's tough. It's tough to keep stories in the headlines. I want to open us up to questions from the audience now. Um, who would like to raise their hand? Yes, I see a question there. Raise your hand and a microphone will head your way because we have people watching online too. Sure. I'm curious if you've done any stories about Afghan women and either having what their expectations are either of America or Americans who were in Afghanistan and have ways of helping them. Um, actually, the women, they criticizing um, U.S. government because... Uh, um, I know there is m- many challenges in Afghanistan, but in the meantime, um, U.S. Uh, government, they made a decision without any alternative strategic plan. So at the beginning in 2000, uh, 2001, so they, um, they human rights, no, sorry, the, the women rights, uh, it was uh, the top of um, U.S. Um, topic, um, um, but uh, in 2021, they left alone uh, Afghan Afghan women. So they now they asking all the time if you listening to their message, they ask solidarity and support. So, you know, like, it is unbelievable that um, they deprived from very basic and fundamental rights, the right to go to education, to work, so they are staying at home, um, even they are not allowed to go in 72 kilometers without any melmahram. Um, so which is very, very difficult moment for them. Hi. Um, my question is, what is your realistic hope, given all the things you've said? 
I think uh, Iran and, and Afghanistan very much so separate. Uh, with Afghanistan, it's very, very hard to see um, be, uh, for, for women in particular, unless we see a point where the Taliban decide this is costing them too much. Um, the biggest focus is getting girls back into school, I think, right now. Um, that's the biggest, biggest challenge. There's a big debate over how to do that, whether or not, you know, more targeted travel sanctions on specific Taliban leaders might help um, or whether more carrot, you know, um, might help. But right now, it's just it's just really not clear what the Taliban actually want. That's the biggest problem trying to negotiate with the Taliban, because it's very, very unclear what it is they're actually willing to negotiate for. Um but if there if if there is a way to try to negotiate that, it likely will involve other countries. It's not just going to be America talking to you know at the Taliban. It needs to involve countries that have a slightly better relationship, like whether it's the UAE or Qatar or Pakistan, trying to get those countries on board. Um, that, that that's that's probably the most likely way forward, um, at least from 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 an from an Afghanistan perspective. Um, are the Taliban totally uh, unified or you know, are there different um, sections of Taliban that are less or more pro-developing uh, some sort of a country? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, they will always deny that there are divisions. There have been a lot of reports over the last 18, 19 months that there's infighting and fights, physical fights between leaders, and it's always a denial. Um, but it does seem that there is a division in terms of people who really want to go back to the way of the 90s, a very strict form of Sharia law imposed on all of society. And then there's another faction that recognizes that we just can't be like that anymore. And I mean, I'll give you an example. We, we went to a school. Uh, we went to go visit a school. I had to get permission from the Ministry of Education. And we got the permission to go. And on our way out, the, the gentleman who gave us permission said that, you know, please don't take photographs of some of the older girls in this school which tells me that there is an acknowledgement, there is an awareness that there are girls who are going to school, but they have to present this image that, no, you know, we're not allowing it because there's a constituency that they have to please. And as they kind of consolidate power and try to figure out how to govern this country after 20 years of not being in power, they have to be unified. They have to consolidate power. Otherwise, it all comes falling apart. So my sense is that there are cracks. I don't know how deep they are. I don't know how extensive they are, but there are cracks. And I think that, to your point, might be an opportunity to what degree outside powers can kind of exploit that and leverage that. Well, we shall see. But um, it does seem that girls' education might be the space where you can apply some pressure because the economy is in shambles. At a certain point, you can't just dismiss half of your population and prevent them from working. It, pretty soon, it's going to become a public health crisis. I mean, 
In Pactica province, which is south of Kabul, population 1.5 million, two female doctors for a population of 1.5 million. And this comes at a time when there are rules against women seeing male doctors. This comes at a time when women cannot work for NGOs anymore. That was just a couple of months ago that they introduced that law. This comes at a time when they have prevented girls ages 11 and up from going to school. So now that you've removed girls from a system in which you, you know, you're training doctors. Um, if this continues for too long, there are going to be no female doctors left. So I think at a certain point, they might, they might be confronted with a practicality problem, right? The, the country just does not, can't operate uh, without its women. So I'm going to be very interested to see kind of how that shakes out in the years to come. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, in the almost two years, so according to the one in his investigative reports, the Taliban, they arrested and imprisoned um, 1,115 women. So, and uh, um, they um, also uh, declared uh, 30 orders to put restriction and limitation from uh, the women's social life. I think uh, the Taliban, they didn't change. They 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 said lie and before during the peace negotiation in in Qatar in Doha. Um, so a, a, a number of uh, the Taliban leaders like Hakan uh, Network, um, they said um, I think it's uh, like a pro propaganda that and and media they said yeah we are um, not against the women education. But almost two years, we lost our time, you know, like, uh, it's not the Taliban um, uh, promotions uh, and the Taliban um, promise. Uh, it's uh, two years that the girls, they are just counting days and days that when they announced that the school and university will open for, for them, which is very, very difficult to believe the Taliban, they have changed. They, they didn't change. They are the same. One small glimmer of hope, though, is the fact that you can't uneducate those girls that have been educated. They read. They are on social media. You know, you can never take that away. And the Taliban may have rolled into Kabul, but they rolled into a city where they have found a very, very different generation of young women. Um, it's absolutely criminal that, that many of them are now watching their hopes and aspirations of college and careers just vanish but these women are hope these young women might be able to sit this out, wait this out. The Taliban were last in power for four years. If that was the case again, then we'd be halfway there. Um, you know, we don't have any indicator that in two years they'll be gone, of course. But I, I do think for those young women who at least know how to read and write, who have, you know, some have access to the internet, certainly not all. Um, some of them are being secretly, you know, educated at home. Um, if they can read and write you can, and you can get them books, you know, there, there is a, m a slightly more hopeful chance for that generation than there was in 1996. Yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, that's hundred percent true. But, um, in the meantime, when the, the women, they are not able to go outside of their house. 
So there is, uh, you know, unfortunate that domestic violence um, the uh, increase in um, almost two years. So the women they they uh, lost their income. So if a woman uh, doesn't have the income, you know, like you will not accept it. So in in um, well, you know, well, this the majority of of Afghan feminists, uh, but the women they are the breadwinners. So uh, imagine that now. Um, 98% according to the UN uh, special report reporters, um, 98% of people they don't have enough food for eating. So that's what's very heartbreaking. So the Taliban takeover obviously led to a lot of people leaving the country as well. And Zara, you mentioned your Far From Home project, but I was wondering if maybe you could all also talk about your approach to reporting on refugee communities or the greater diaspora and like how that's been impacted by kind of like your reporting skills from being in that country and then how you apply that to reporting on Afghans or Iranians who have kind of been forced to leave their home country. Um, well, um Far from home, uh, it was a very good example for how the refugees uh, they are facing to challenges um, and, and when they left their homes. Um, you know, like for me, um, you know, I, I first leave my, uh, my country. So starting your life from scratch, uh, it is very, very difficult and it takes a lot of your time so uh, I think um, if the Taliban they didn't come uh, come to Kabul and they didn't took power uh, in Afghanistan so today I've, I I I assured you that, that today I graduated from university for my master degrees so you know like it's almost two years that I am uh, deprived from you know, seeing my parents and my friends, and um, that's very, very, very difficult. But um, um, that Afghan refugees, um, you know, um, the huge numbers uh, of them are living in um, Asian countries like Iran, Pakistan, and it's very, very uh, um, bad conditions. So they are facing lots of restriction from this and into governments. Um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, like in Italy, it happened, um, a devastating um, accident, accident happened in, um, in the seas. That the, it was 72 uh, people from Afghanistan and Iran and Syria. They, they just lost their lives. So um, it's very difficult. I think it's also worth, you know, always pointing out at, at a moment when immigration is such a politically charged topic, it's such a politically exploited topic in politics. It's important to remind people um, of the nuances of, of, of an entire generation of people who didn't want to leave their country, of the difference between, you know, you know, immigration and refugees and people fleeing war um, that, you know, so many people, I think, a lot of, of members of the public, and it's our job to sort of try to really bring more nuance uh, to, to, the, to their uh, experiences of the outer world, they think everybody just 
desperately wants to live in the United States or desperately wants to live in Western Europe. And that's not necessarily the case. In, in Afghanistan, there's this whole generation of young people who were massively invested in their country, who built careers and lives in journalism and human rights law and development. They got into the government. They got into the military. They really did not picture their lives uh, in the West. And then whenever Kabul fell, you know, watching like hundreds and hundreds of people line up to get on those C-17 flights and then on the C-17 flights, they were allowed to bring nothing but a purse, a tiny, tiny handbag. They had nothing with them. So when they arrive, they uh, they are they are dealing with all sorts of traumas and uh, and fears and um and and I think that context is is super super important for our, for our readership and and viewers to to understand um a a couple of things there there is an organization that's working with Afghan women and lawyers in exile that I volunteer with and um certainly there's a difference between those refugees and for example those from Ukraine who expect and plan to go back to their country it's very different for the women I work with, all of whom have backgrounds in human rights and women's rights and would be in danger if they were if they were at home. That's not my question. <laughs> um, a concern, uh, I think, is that American the American public and the government's attention is very fickle. In the beginning, there was awareness of an interest in the exodus from Afghanistan and the big airplanes and the big hullabaloo about whether it was done right and all that, and people cared about that for a while, largely because it had to do with American military people coming out. And then attention shifted to Ukraine. <laughs> and now that's kind of of interest, and except for now it's all about the presidential election. That's really what everyone's talking about. That's what all the news is about. So my question is this. Do you see a role for journalists like yourselves in grabbing, in getting attention from the American public and the government on the continuing plight in Afghanistan? The it's it's hard to think of a crisis as chronic, <laughs> because by definition a crisis is short lived. So, but Afghanistan and of course Iran are really in a state of chronic crisis. So how do you, what can journalists do if you think they can to keep up interest in that, to, to make people care about it again or still? I mean, I don't know that this is the perfect answer. I mean, I think some of it falls to us to um, really capture the stakes for people. Um. When it comes to Afghanistan, for example, I think in the last 18 to 19 months that the Taliban has been in power, uh, the Islamic State has really stepped up attacks. I mean, it has a huge foothold in Afghanistan. And that's a huge problem for the United States. I mean, the entire war that was fought for 20 years was fought because of the presence of another extremist group that waged an attack from from those grounds. And so we're starting to see that another group may be materializing here and could pose a huge threat. It's not in our nature to worry about things until it's become a crisis, until there's a 9-11 or another attack. 
I don't know how you can fight human nature, but I do think that maybe as journalists, we ought to do better to capture the stakes and to highlight how things are starting to become problems before they actually become more problems. Um, I don't know. It, 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 it's, it's, an, it's, it's an interesting, it's a huge, it's ultimately one of our biggest dilemmas as journalists, right? Because I think there's always going to be, and I'm thinking in the forefront of my mind right now is the 20 year anniversary of the invasion of Iraq. You know, every, every story, you know, eventually gets somewhat abandoned. Um, and Iraq is still reeling from, from the, the, the repercussions of the invasion. Um, I think one thing that I, I do not have the answer to, but which is a, 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 a constant sort of conflict that a tension that's always in the air around journalism is the conflict between whether or not what we do is a product that is for sale or a service. I mean, NPR, PBS. So we're very lucky to not have to be constantly relying on ratings. I'm very lucky my bosses aren't looking at, well, you know, that Justin Bieber story did much better than your piece on, you know, from Bamian. Um, but there is still, you know, the, the vast majority of, of people are still getting to to some extent their news from private media. And private media needs to attract advertising. And to do that, they need to have ratings. And to do that, they need to have people interested in the story. And if people are now interested in, you know, whatever's happening uh, in in Ukraine more than they're interested in what's happening in in Afghanistan that's always going to be the tension how do how do you get news to pay for itself um how, how much of what we're telling people is what we think they really should know as opposed to what they're telling us they want to know and this i think you know this goes often above the heads of the field reporters like myself to 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 the editors and the corporate you know um uh, bosses who are trying to figure out media strategy, but that's always going to be uh, part of the tension of, of what of what we do. And it just as a one little plug for the Pulitzer Center, that's also what they do. They help us pay for the reporting that's important, um, slightly expensive, and you know perhaps less bombastic than the latest big story that everybody's covering. Yeah, just one thing that. Um... I'm I'm very glad that you don't have this um, experience, refugee. So being a refugee is a very, very painful experience. For me, um, if the Kabul fall doesn't happen and uh, my life as a journalist, as a female journalist and as a minority group um, in Afghanistan was uh, in, in danger, I really, you know, like, not only me and many other Afghans, they 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 will they will not um, leave their countries, their country. Uh, so for me, for uh, in in my in, you know, I'm thirty years old. <laughs> um, I never imagined before that one day I will leave my country and I will be a refugee. It's very very heartbroken. Uh, but um, in the meantime, um, yeah, let me share this experience, personal experience. So at the beginning of Kabul fall, um, I just stayed for three or, or uh, four days at home. So and then I went uh, outside without any long hijab. Um, I went uh, and interviewed with 
with some women that they just, you know, the unbelievably women they displayed disappeared from the streets. Um, so I wrote this story for the Guardian on that time. So I met some of my colleague, previous colleague, and um, journalist, and that what should we do? So they say we made this decision. We have to stay in the country because this is our country, and it's depend on us that we we should work with the Taliban. But very quickly um, and soon, the Taliban they started arresting the journalists and torturing them. So not like and um, yeah, I mean, two of my uh, previous um, colleagues, they the Taliban tortured them. Uh, so it was very, very um, painful for us that, to see how our colleagues in front of your eyes, right, beaten and tortured. So that we forced to flee from from our country, which is which is very, very. Um, I think it's good if the people um, and they just recognize our situation. It is very um, good and it gives us a lot, a little bit hope. But let's remember that the refuge, today's refugee, our asylum seekers, they will be the tomorrow doctors, teachers, or, or journalists, or I mean, your description of just what you went through and what people are going through um, is such a reminder to all of us of just the importance of keeping telling these stories. And I guess in answer to your question, it's very, it's relatively easy to do a story when it's the big news story. And that's just the most, the least ambitious kind of journalism the most challenging and important journalism is continuing to cover the story. And that takes creativity, that takes going out of Kabul into the villages, that that takes um, figuring out a new angle, f finding those, spending a lot of time with people uh, so that you can understand like the, 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 ch the challenges that they're going through. That takes thinking ahead. Uh, many months ahead of an anniversary and planning. That's the kind of work that that we should be doing as journalists. And that is what separates journalism that is of service and is the really important journalism in our times. And um, we won't forget. And let us just remember... Um, to do the stories that aren't the obvious biggest story of that moment. And it's absolutely possible. It just is a lot harder and takes a lot more creativity and time because you can't just run past something and take a few notes. I was uh, a freelance foreign correspondent in, in Greece and Turkey in 2015 during the big refugee crisis. And uh, just to this ongoing challenge that you've all expressed so well about, um, you know, with an ongoing story, how do you make it stand out? 
But every once in a while, you get a chance. So I'm writing a book um, about a shipwreck that occurred in 2015 between Turkey and Greece. And, you know, just in your career, every once in a while, these opportunities come up because it's not really financially lucrative, but sometimes you become obsessed. And so here it is nine years later, and I'm still writing about this one day. And I'm actually one of the main people that I'm writing about is incredible, uh, now 30-year-old, so around your age, Afghan man from Kabul who lost his entire family in this shipwreck. But I'm sharing this uh, not really to talk about the book, but just sometimes there are these opportunities. And for me, I've done mostly daily journalism. And so this was just so unnerving for me to spend so much time on one story. And I thought, um, maybe this is a waste of time. Nobody will care. But then as the news cycles progress and progress, I realize, you know, you start telling a universal story that will hopefully resonate. And, you know, that's kind of the best we can do is just keep trying. She's just building on what you said. It's finding that universal element in the story that is what you're, what keeps it alive. Last question, yes. I'm just wondering what your call to journalism was, and especially uh, going out and being a foreign correspondent or becoming a journalist in very difficult circumstances. Um, for me, it was 9-11. Um, it was 9-11 and then the case to go to war with Iraq that really kind of blew my 15, 16-year-old mind. You know, this idea that an administration could tell such a bald-faced lie to people and get away with it. And we entered into this war that lasted years, destroyed lives on both ends. I mean, entire generations, completely lives destroyed. Um, I think that for me was the moment that I felt like, okay, journalism has a role to play here. Um that accountability is super important. Those were some pretty troubling years because shortly after that was also the recession, right? A completely avoidable recession. And it just kind of goes to show how important that fourth estate is and how important it is to keep it healthy, to keep it well-funded. Um, and we're so lucky to live in a, in a country where you get to ask questions, right? Like we can hold people accountable, but we gotta pay attention. And you got to ask questions and you got to show up and you have to kind of work through the complexities of a story. I mean, some of these stories are by their very nature, by design, meant to be complicated so that average ordinary people just can't wrap their heads around it. Right. And so it takes a lot of cooperation from our end, from your end. I mean, all of us to kind of do our part to kind of just pay attention to what's going on and. I get it. Life is really busy. Everyone's kind of doing their own thing. You got kids to raise. You got the mortgage to pay. I mean, life has its ways. But um, I think if I were to go back, that was a huge turning point for me, 9-11 and the Iraq war. And it's kind of crazy that we're talking on the week where we're now reflecting on 20 years since that war. And what have we learned? 
And are we asking the right questions? Um, you know, now we have this banking turmoil and it makes you wonder again, are we asking the right questions or is there kind of a lot of hidden skeletons kind of beneath it all? Um, so, yeah, that's it for me, Jane. Well, uh, a couple of things. I wanted to be a, a journalist since I was a tiny kid. And um, I think looking back, I grew up in Northern Ireland um, during the conflict there. And I grew up in the very last Protestant village before you got to South Armagh, which was a really strong IRA um, heartland. And I was fascinated in retrospect when I look back at that little girl. She was fascinated by the idea of violence. What would make an otherwise ordinary person, baker, driver, farmer, commit an act of violence and often put themselves at enormous risk to... to, to what what was it that created insurgencies? What made people rebel against incredible power, like the British government, the British military? I spent most of my career embedded with uh, insurgencies, you know, spending time with the Houthis, with Hamas, with the Taliban, with Darfurian rebels. I was kind of a bit obsessed with what it was that created uh, insurgent groups and, and who were these people and why were they doing this? I also grew up in a really patriarchal society, um, you know, uh, Northern Ireland, Ulster Scots culture, it was it was pretty patriarchal. I didn't have a lot of female professional role models. And um, yet, when you turned on the TV in the evening, and, you know, the voice of God that was the evening news, I was raised on the BBC, um, there were women on the TV, and all of the men were quiet and watching and listening to what they were saying. Um, and, you know, the BBC had like, you know, they had Kate Aidy and Orla Gearin, they had female anchors, but they had women out in the field all over the world telling these incredible stories, commanding people's attention. Um, and we come from a storytelling culture. So I thought that was fascinating. I thought they were incredible. Um and that's really all it takes when you're young is just to have that one little moment where you see a woman doing something and you think, huh, and then the rest of your life is history. Um, I didn't study um, journalism. I studied law. So um, for me, journalism is um, like a weapon and giving a voice to the the, the voiceless and... Um, I believe the soft power of words and um, the countries like has uh, like Afghanistan that they are engaging lots of conflict, uh, especially in, in society. So we have diversity, society, um, different groups, um, ethnicity groups, they are living there. Um, it is, uh, they are facing for, with the uh, lack of awareness. Uh, for me, it, it was, and it still it is very important to do some awareness. Um, so, I mean, I, I, it's almost two years that I'm living in a beautiful city like London, that I'm very grateful from the government, UK government and people, they accept me as a free refugee. Um, um, you know, uh, uh, dear, I have uh, lots of uh, opportunities to go to do something fun for my 
south, yeah, my, with my sisters, with my um, friends in London. So it has a lot of parts. So, but when I'm seeing that my country is going through like a hill, so um, and the women, the half of the population, they are deprived from very fundamental rights. So um, I'm trying to stay home. So I spend my, the whole time of um, my life to, to to do some awareness because it is very important. With that, let me just thank our amazing panelists. Let me thank again Anne Peters and the Pulitzer Center for supporting this, the amazing work of journalists like these. We need to hear these stories. Thank you to our students who are from these, this part of the world who um, we love having you here and supporting you. <laughs> um, to our um, event staff and to Deirdre and Leah who and Rick who helped put this on and to all of you for being here. Thank you. And I'm Gita Anand, I'm Dean of the School of Journalism. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. Follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. <laughs>